0: You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com In 1814 we took a little trip Along with Colonel Jackson down the mighty Mississippi We took a little bacon and we took a little beans And we caught the bloody British in a town in New Orleans We fired our
1: guns and the British kept coming There wasn't by as many as there was a while ago we fired once more and they began to run it On down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico
0: We looked down the river and we see the British come And there must have been a hundred of them beating on the drum They stepped so high and they made the bugles ring We stood beside our cotton bales and didn't say a thing We fired
1: our guns and the British kept for coming There wasn't as many as there was a while ago We fired once more and they began to run it On down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico
0: Old Hickory said we could take them by surprise If we didn't fire muskets till we looked them in the eye We held our fire till we see their faces well Then we opened up the squirrel guns and really gave them well We fired our guns and the British kept
1: coming There wasn't as many as there was a while ago We fired once more and they began to run it Well, down the Mississippi to
2: the Gulf. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 11th day of April, 2010. I'd like to welcome all of the listeners back to The Corbett Report and invite them all, as always, to check into my websites, corbettreport.com, climategate.tv, al qaeda does not and reportagebook.com. I'd also like the listeners to check into those websites that help to broadcast, syndicate, and distribute this podcast, including ZeroPointRadio.com, OneSkyRadio.com, CascadiaPublicRadio.com, RadioForAll.net, Archive.org, and TragedyAndHope.com. Finally, I'd like to give a hearty thank you to all of those listeners who continue to send in their donations for our ongoing fund drive. And I would also like to thank my parents for mailing out the first round of 2020 Hindsight DVDs from their home in Canada. So those should be arriving any day now, and perhaps some people have already received them. So please look for that in the mail if you have donated to the Corbett Report in recent weeks. Just a reminder that while DVDs last, we will be sending out one DVD for each person who donates to the Corbett Report website, and the funds will be used to help fund our operations and purchases of new technology. But now, without further ado, let's get to today's Sunday update. Hello, this is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Welcome to Sunday Update for this 11th day of April 2010. And now, for the real news. NSA wiretapping is in the headlines once again as Federal District Court Judge Vaughn Walker found the government acted illegally in wiretapping an Islamic charity's phone calls in 2004.
1: A federal
3: judge has ruled the National Security Agency's warrantless surveillance program was illegal and in violation of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Chief Judge Vaughn Walker of the Federal District Court in San Francisco ruled the government illegally intercepted the phone calls of an Oregon-based Islamic charity called al Haramein in 2004. Both the Bush and Obama administrations had tried to dismiss the suit, claiming a trial could result in the release of state secrets, but Judge Walker rejected the state secrets argument. John Eisenberg, said the ruling marks, quote, an implicit repudiation of the Bush-Cheney theory of
4: executive power.
2: The NSA wiretapping case first broke when it was reported in The New York Times in December of 2005. The story, which revealed that the NSA was helping the Bush-DOJ to bypass the FISA court and obtain wiretaps without a warrant, proved that President Bush had lied to the American people in 2004 about how his administration authorized wiretaps of terror suspects.
5: Uh, secondly uh, there are such things as roving wiretaps now by the way anytime you hear the United States government talking about wiretap it requires a wiretap requires a court order nothing has changed by the way when we're talking about chasing down terrorists we're talking about getting a court order before we do so it's important for our fellow citizens to understand when you think Patriot Act constitutional guarantees are in place when it comes to
2: doing what is necessary to protect our homeland because we value the Constitution. In 2007, then-Senator Barack Obama claimed to be against the illegal warrantless wiretapping program.
6: I will provide our intelligence and law enforcement agencies with the tools they need to track and take out the terrorists without undermining our Constitution and our freedom. That means no more illegal wiretapping of American citizens. No more national security letters to spy on citizens who are not suspected of a crime. No more tracking citizens who do nothing more than protest a misguided war. No more ignoring the law when it is inconvenient. That is not who we are.
2: After taking office, however, his administration not only embraced the practice, but in fact went even further than the Bush administration in arguing that the state secrets privilege precluded the subject from even being discussed in court.
4: I think that right now the Bush people are bringing out their mission accomplished sign because they've not only gotten Obama to protect uh, Bush and Cheney and others uh, from any criminal investigation on torture, but he's now gone even further than they did in the protection of unlawful surveillance. And so this is the ultimate victory for the Bush officials. They have Barack Obama uh, adopting the same extremist arguments and in fact exceeding the extremist arguments made by President Bush.
2: Although the focus of the NSA spying story is often the wiretap of certain terror suspects, it was in fact revealed in 2004 that the NSA had built secret backdoors into major telecommunications hubs of companies like AT&T and was splitting the pipes so they could secretly copy and monitor all email and phone traffic passing through the
6: United States. An AT&T whistleblower today told members of Congress much more than that is at stake with the secret crimes that took place at room 641A of AT&T's Folsom Street facility in San Francisco, and potentially at others across the country. Specifically, retired 22-year AT&T technician Mark Klein says that despite Mr. Bush's claims, the U.S. government used AT&T's cooperation to spy not only on overseas communications, but to vacuum up virtually all of America's use of the Internet for years email, Googling, web surfing, you name it, thanks to AT&T secure rooms like 641A in San Francisco. Cisco accessible only to those cleared by the NSA. Klein obtaining AT&T schematics, showing how the company used splitters to send secure room 641A, a duplicate of every fiber optic signal routed through its facilities, and involved not just AT&T customers, but virtually every internet and telecommunications company, and virtually all email and web traffic in the country without a warrant, without any mechanism for separating domestic from overseas, without separating suspect from citizen.
2: The NSA's use of these backdoors to spy on all telecommunications traffic in the U.S. was not a part of the war on terror, as commonly argued. In reality, the program had nothing to do with 9-11 or terrorism, but was in fact federally mandated in 1994 in a law known as the Communications Assistance for Law Enforcement Act. This act forced telecoms companies to use equipment and software that would allow the federal government to monitor all communications in the country in real time. The most recent decision by Judge Walker is currently being analyzed by the Obama Department of Justice, who are expected to appeal it. In other news this week, a draconian new bill to allow the UK government to ban citizens from the internet for violating copyright laws was rushed through the UK Parliament last Tuesday.
7: The bill's aimed at ensuring the UK's at the cutting edge of the global digital economy. It includes a clampdown on illegal file sharing, a push for a switch over to digital radio, and tougher laws to stop children getting hold of violent video games. But its detractors see it as draconian. It would give internet service providers the power to disconnect entire households from the web for illegal file sharing.
2: The bill was opposed by many online civil rights activists who fear that it will give the government too much power in indiscriminately disconnecting the public from vast swaths of the internet, potentially even affecting sites like YouTube, where copyrighted material is available for free viewing. Earlier this week, the Corporate Report talked to Hannah Landsborough, a ca- campaigner with 38degrees.org.uk, about how activists can continue fighting against similar legislation that is being considered in multiple countries around the world.
4: And I think globally, there are a number of um, very compelling campaigns. I mean, it's something where people really need to look at their own um, domestic campaigning organisations who are working on this, because this isn't something at the moment that has an international movement behind it. So it's really looking at organisations who are working on these issues at home. And it's, it's terribly important that wherever you are in the world, you, you're kind of fighting to make sure that these freedoms are respected because actually, you know, the internet is a global phenomenon and if these, if these kind of erosions of freedoms sort of take a hold globally, then we will find that the internet is becoming a very, very different place and a much less rich and exciting place to spend your free time.
2: Talk, talk. one of Britain's leading ISP providers, has already indicated that it will fight orders by the UK government to disconnect its customers' accounts in court. Finally this week, the UN is continuing its quest for unelected world government with another climate change conference, this time in Bonn, Germany.
7: The United Nations having abjectly failed at Copenhagen in December of 2009 to impose upon the world a totally unnecessary, wickedly expensive, democracy-destroying world government treaty has now decided to hold an emergency meeting of states, parties to the United Nations Framework Convention at Bonn. And there, seven months before the next Cancun round of treaty negotiations, they are going to try to stitch together a deal to take democracy and freedom and prosperity away worldwide forever and to make themselves very, very rich and to make you who are watching this video very, very poor.
2: The meeting is meant to help negotiators form a basis for another round of climate talks in Cancun this December. The last round of climate talks in Copenhagen was supposed to form the basis for a successor deal to the Kyoto Accord, but ended in dismal failure as the talks fell apart. In recent months, poll after poll has shown that the ClimateGate scandal and other problems with the UN IPCC has deeply affected public opinion about climate change. A Rasmussen poll conducted on the eve of the Copenhagen talks last December found that a staggering 59% of Americans believe it likely that scientists have falsified data about global warming to justify their own theories and beliefs. Now, stay tuned for episode 125 of the Corbett Report, Old Hickory and the Den of Vipers, as we discuss the history and legacy of the seventh president of the United States, Andrew Jackson, who fought an epic battle against the second bank of the United States, and ultimately prevailed in killing the bank. Welcome to episode 125 of the Corbett Report, Old Hickory and the Den of Vipers. Now, for those well-versed in American history, and perhaps many of my American listeners, it will be quite evident to the person to whom I'm referring by the title Old Hickory, and that is, of course, the seventh president of the United States, Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson is an incredibly interesting historical figure to whom many colorful adjectives can be applied, I'm sure both on the positive and negative sides of the spectrum, And that goes some way to describing the very interesting and conflicted story of his meteoric rise from relative obscurity in the South to President of the United States, a story through which we can learn so much about the spirit and what was happening in the time of that important era in American history, the era that we now know of as the era of Jacksonian democracy. Although this episode will focus quite specifically on one particular era of Jackson's life and one particular accomplishment in that very remarkable life, I by no means want this or really any other episode of this podcast to be construed as mere hero worship or idolatry of this man who, after all, was just a man and, like any other man, has Good points and bad points, things to be lauded and things not to be lauded by any means. And Andrew Jackson, of course, was no different. So, in order to get a taste of the way in which Jackson is remembered today, both for his amazing achievements and his disgraceful achievements, let's take a listen to this short clip from KLRN TV. <laughs>
5: In 1859, as America was rushing towards civil war, James Parton, the first historian to attempt a biography of Andrew Jackson, arrived at the Hermitage, Jackson's beloved home. He was escorted through the mansion by Hannah Jackson, who had been Andrew Jackson's slave from the time she was ten until Jackson died. Parton knew that many Americans considered Andrew Jackson the country's greatest leader since the Founding Fathers. Parton wrote, During the last 30 years of his life, he was the idol of the American people. Columbus had sailed. Washington fought. Jefferson written. 50 years of democratic government had passed. And the result of it all was that the people of the United States honored Andrew Jackson before all other living men. Andrew Jackson, in my mind, is one of the great presidents. And it's not surprising that he was so loved. In fact, it is said that when the Civil War broke out in 1861, people wanted to vote for Andrew Jackson Hoping he would come back and save the Union, he was that beloved. For all of his flaws, for all of his contradictions, Andrew Jackson did more than any other American of his generation to enlarge the possibilities of American democracy. In doing that, and seeing himself as president, as the tribune of the people, he did more than anyone to change to enlarge the possibilities of the American presidency. But Jackson was also one of the most controversial presidents in American history. His policies on issues like Indian removal and slavery provoked fierce opposition, not only in his lifetime, but beyond.
7: Andrew Jackson for African-Americans is not the sort of figure uh, that one holds very dear. He wouldn't form part of the, the ranks of the great men Uh, of American society because never in his reign as president, in his terms as president, did he ever attempt to expand the rights of people. On the contrary, he did everything he could, it seems to me, to constrict those rights, to limit those rights.
3: People talk about Andrew Jackson's black moods. People talk about Andrew Jackson's red-hot temper. But the color of this story is green, and it's the green of envy and it's the grain of coveting Indian lands.
5: At the Hermitage, Parton discovered a portrait of Jackson finished just before he died. It was completely unlike the many heroic portraits of the great man and the vulnerability it captured brought to life Parton's most insightful description of Jackson. He was a democratic autocrat an urbane savage, an atrocious saint. Americans have always looked at Andrew Jackson and seen themselves. But over the years, they've looked at Andrew Jackson and seen different versions of themselves. At one time, they saw the frontiersman, the poor boy made good, the classic self-made man. Today, some Americans look back at Jackson and they see the slaveholder, the Indian oppressor, even the Indian hater. So the debate about Andrew Jackson is a very contemporary one. He's an inescapable, quintessential American, but of what kind? Uh, is he a man whom we should admire or is he a man whom we should despise? Is he a man for whom we should celebrate, or is he a man for whom we should apologize?
2: Or was he, after all, just a man, and no more deserving of unquestioning hero-worship or unthinking vilification than any other human being? So let's take him at face value for what he achieved, both positively and negatively, and certainly we can point to slave ownership as An extremely bad thing, although one that was practiced by very many people in that day and age, and not necessarily men of white European extraction, although that fact is not often talked about these days. And certainly, President Jackson's Indian Removal Act and the Trail of Tears stands as one of the greatest humanitarian disasters of the American continent, and I think no biography of Jackson would be complete without taking a look at that very, very regrettable incident. But nonetheless, there were some remarkable achievements in this man's life, and there is a reason why he was so revered in his day, and was one of really the first populist presidents of the common man, or at least that's how he was construed in his day. Now today we're going to be looking at one specific aspect of his presidency, which of course was towards the end of his life, but in order to get a better handle on how he played a part in that extremely important time in American politics, I think it would be beneficial to take a look at some crucial moments from his early life, and let's take a listen to a biography from the History Channel and a couple of very interesting incidents from Andrew Jackson's life. On January 8th, 1815,
7: Major General Andrew Jackson faced the challenge of a lifetime In the climactic battle of the War of 1812, 10,000 British Redcoats invaded the South at New Orleans. One obstacle stood in the way of the British regaining their former colonies. Jackson and his ragged army of 4,000 militia, pirates, Indians, Creoles and slaves. The British expected an easy victory. But they knew little of the man they were facing, whose determination to win was fueled by a deep personal hatred that went back more than 30 years. In 1781, when Jackson was 14 and the Revolutionary War was raging, British soldiers stormed a cabin where he and his brother Robert tried to hide. The boys were taken prisoner serving as couriers in the Continental Army three words from a British officer would light a fuse in Jackson that burned for a lifetime clean my boots
0: Jackson with that insolence that would characterize him for his entire life refused he said I'm a prisoner of war and I demand to be treated accordingly Jackson was had always been a sassy kid and now he was miffed at having been taken prisoner and the officer pulls his sword and, and takes a swipe at Jackson's head. And Jackson throws up his arm and caught the sword on the side of his hand, but it didn't quite prevent the sword from hitting him in the head. And blood runs down And for the rest of his life. He had this
2: scar in his hand and a crease in his skull. Certainly then, the young Jackson was not afraid to speak to those in authority, and was not going to bow down to anyone simply because they had a uniform and a gun, and that trait was to serve him well throughout his life, and of course the incredible physical strength of Jackson, or the physical endurance of of Jackson in the many trials and tribulations which he faced in his life can be presaged in that moment as well. So... What then of the nickname Old Hickory?
7: When the United States declared war against Britain in 1812, no one wanted to be part of the fight more than Jackson. Even though military commanders in Washington had doubts about the militia, Jackson was ordered to march his 2,000 volunteers toward the port of New Orleans in preparation for a possible British landing and assault. Jackson and his troops set out in January, 1813. It took three months to cover the first 500 miles. But when the army arrived in Natchez, then part of the Mississippi territory, Jackson received infuriating news. He got an order
0: to disband the troops. They weren't needed and to send them home. The War Department didn't want the troops there, the War Department didn't want to pay to march them back, to provision and march them back. And Jackson was outraged by all of this. How are they going to get home? They didn't have any money, many of them were sick. So Jackson did what Jackson was pretty good at doing under similar circumstances, he simply defied the orders. And he decided, he announced that he was going to march the troops home himself.
7: A father figure to his troops, most of whom were not yet 20 years old, Jackson paid for provisions out of his own pocket to get his boys home. Jackson himself was in ill health, brought on by the cumulative effects of dysentery, his childhood smallpox, and old gunshot wounds. Even so, the 46-year-old general gave up his horse to transport volunteers too sick to walk on their own. If he didn't have to, he could have ridden on a horse, he could have not gone at all or taken a,
5: a boat back. But Jackson got up there the rest of them and got muddy and got the brambles all of them cutting his face and so forth. And one of these these boys, these soldiers said, Old Jackson, he's tough as hickory. Because that was the toughest wood that that soldier knew. And the name stuck, Old Hickory. And it stayed with Jackson all of his life.
2: Old Hickory, indeed. Well, for those who are interested in finding out more about the biographical details of Andrew Jackson's life, I think the History Channel biography is as good a place as any to start in case you're not really familiar with his life at all. But for those who are interested in the seminal event of Andrew Jackson's life and the event for which he would become a national political hero, the Battle of New Orleans in January 1815... I'll include a link in the documentation section for today's episode to an article about Jackson's leading the Battle of New Orleans, so you can read more for yourself about how Jackson took a ragtag band of militia and pirates and free men of color from Creole and made them into a fighting machine that was capable of taking on Major General Sir Edward Pakenham and an army of British regulars who were veterans of the Napoleonic Wars— and dealt them an incredibly decisive defeat, killing 828, wounding more than 2,400, and in the process only losing eight men with 14 wounded. An absolutely incredible victory, and the last battle of the War of 1812, which, of course, made Andrew Jackson an instant hero, whether or not he had actually really won the war, which, of course, was decided in Europe, he had been the man who... ...dealt such a decisive defeat to Britain at the last moment. But skipping over that extremely interesting history, and history that I do recommend people start to read for themselves... ...we come to the other half of the enigmatic title of today's episode, The Den of Vipers. Well, who are the Den of Vipers, and what did Jackson do to oppose them... Well, those are two questions that have great relevance for us today, in 2010, and will continue to do so, I'm sure, for many hundreds of years, because of course this touches on one of the central themes of American history, and indeed world history, for anyone who has delved into these matters at any length. So rather than talking about it in this oblique way, why don't we get into a clip from an excellent documentary, and one that I cannot recommend highly enough, called the secrets of oz now this is narrated by bill still who i'm sure many of you will know from the money masters another excellent documentary and one that again i cannot recommend highly enough both documentaries going into the real history of the united states and indeed history in general that is to say, the history of banks, banking, and how the monetary system really controls all of the socio-political superstructure of our society. Now, the central conceit of the Secret of Oz documentary is that L. Frank Baum, the writer of The Wizard of Oz, encoded a monetary allegory in his classic children's story and one that has been lost in the sands of time as we have gone further and further away from the original stories involved and as we have come to know his story through the Hollywood version rather than through the book itself and there are some key changes that make the allegory that much more difficult to see. That's an extremely interesting aspect of this and it does serve to tie things together in a way that makes sense to, to a wide range of the audience. But instead of focusing on that, let's focus specifically on one very tiny aspect of that documentary where we look at the Jacksonian era and specifically how Jackson faced the bankers. This clip will start by talking about Jefferson facing the first bank of the United States and what that really was all about. And, of course, will lead into Jackson and his fight against the Second Bank of the United States.
3: Strangely, the Constitution allows the federal government to borrow money, but is silent on the federal role in printing paper money, known in the language of the day as emitting bills of credit. This defect in the Constitution is at the root of all our economic problems today. One mistake the Constitution didn't make was to mandate that the federal government pay all its debts only in gold. Then we would have wound up with the same system that had caused the revolution in the first place. It does mandate that for state governments, but that has never been adhered to. All the Constitution had to do was to mandate that only Congress could issue the nation's money, debt-free, just like most people think happens today. This defect in the Constitution left the door wide open for bankers to ram a bill through Congress in 1791, four years after the Constitution had been signed, to turn over creation of the nation's money to private bankers once again. Like all the privately owned central banks that would follow, the new bank was given a name that would deceive people into thinking it was part of the U.S. government, but it was not. It was called the First Bank of the United States. This is actually the original building here in Philadelphia. After a contentious debate, Congress finally granted the new bank a 20-year charter a private monopoly. Again, the nation's money would be created out of thin air by the new bank and loaned to the government and to private individuals, all at interest, just as our money supply is created today. So, if there was $100 million worth of money in the economy, there would be $100 million worth of national debt. Debt the citizens and their children would have to pay interest on by taxation. And so it is today. The national debt is roughly the same as the national money supply. As Secretary of State, Jefferson watched the borrowing with sadness and frustration, unable to stop it. I wish it were possible to obtain a single amendment to our Constitution, taking from the federal government the power of borrowing. Although Jefferson served two terms as president from 1801 to 1809, nothing was done until the bank's charter came up for renewal in 1811. The press openly attacked the bank, calling it a great swindle. Some writers have claimed that the head of the Bank of England warned that the United States would find itself involved in a most disastrous war if the bank's charter were not renewed. After another contentious debate, the bank's renewal bill was defeated by a single vote in Congress. Within five months, the war of 1812 was on. In 1813, Jefferson wrote to his son-in-law, John Epps, Although we have so foolishly allowed the power of issuing our own debt-free money to be filched from us by private individuals, I think we may recover it. The state should be asked to transfer the right of issuing paper money to Congress in perpetuity. Jefferson had it exactly right. Congress and only Congress should have the right to issue America's paper money and at no interest to no one. In 1814, the British successfully attacked Washington and burned the White House and the Capitol. In 1815, in the last battle of the war, General Andrew Jackson successfully defeated a British attack on New Orleans. After the conclusion of the War of 1812, the very next year, the bankers were back trying to get Congress to reinstate their precious privately owned central bank. Jefferson lashed out in a letter to then Treasury Secretary Gallatin. The Treasury, lacking confidence in the country, delivered itself bound hand and foot to bold and bankrupt bankers pretending to have money, whom it could have crushed at any moment. But despite Jefferson's protests, in 1816, Congress passed a bill giving another 20-year charter to a new privately owned central bank, the second bank of the United States. Once again, the English debt money system was back in control of America. It was almost like the revolution had never happened. But then the bankers ran headlong into old hickory Andrew Jackson. By 1828, opponents of the bank nominated Senator Andrew Jackson of Tennessee, the hero of the final battle of the War of 1812, to run for president. The banks poured millions into Jackson's defeat, but to no avail. The American people were fed up with the privately owned Central Bank and wanted out. Jackson was swept into office in eighteen thirty two with jackson's reelection approaching the bank tried to have their charter renewed early in the hopes that jackson wouldn't want the controversy of a fight with bankers just before the election they were wrong although congress passed the renewal bill jackson vetoed it his veto message drew a direct line between the bank and its masters in the bank of england
4: it is easy to conceive that great evils to our country and its institutions might flow from such a concentration of power in the hands of a few who are irresponsible to the people. Controlling our currency, receiving our public monies, and holding thousands of our citizens in dependence, would be more formidable and dangerous than a military power of the enemy.
3: Nicholas Biddle was head of the Second Bank of the United States. He was brazen with the financial power he wielded over the nation. He even threatened to cause a depression if Jackson's veto were not overturned.
6: Nothing but widespread suffering will produce any effect on Congress. Our only safety is in pursuing a steady course of firm monetary restriction. And I have no doubt that such a course will ultimately lead to restoration of the currency And the recharter of the bank. Biddle
3: made good on his threat. America was quickly plunged into a deep depression. Property was foreclosed on for pennies on the dollar. Jackson
4: responded forcefully You are a den of vipers. I intend to rout you out, and by the eternal God, I will rout you out. Eventually the nation's
3: newspapers sided with Jackson and the bank was not rechartered. Jackson then set about paying off the national debt, a debt caused by the government borrowing the nation's money supply into existence. Jackson was the only president who ever paid off the national debt. A few weeks later, an assassin tried to shoot President Jackson. He stuck two pistols in the stomach, but both misfired. Jackson solemnly warned the nation about any future attempts to establish another privately owned central bank.
4: The bold effort the present bank had made to control the government, the distress it had wantonly produced are but premonitions of the fate that awaits the American people should they be deluded into a perpetuation of this institution or the establishment of another like it.
2: Hmm, so an epic struggle with a privately-owned central bank that created money out of thin air in order to loan to the government at interest, thus putting every man, woman, and child in the country in debt from their very birth? And this was the main political struggle of that era. Hmm, does that sound familiar to you? Well, at any rate, yes, that is the story of Old Hickory and the Den of Vipers. And indeed, Den of Vipers is an absolutely perfectly apt term for those financial parasites who make their livelihood by feeding on the lifeblood of others, simply by creating that lifeblood out of nothing, and then loaning it to the people. An absolutely unthinkable system, but one, make no mistake, we still suffer under Unfortunately, as stirring as those words, den of vipers, I will rout you out, are, they probably were never actually uttered, and we'll get that from businessinsider.com January 27, 2010. Sorry, Andrew Jackson probably never said that Den of Thieves quote. Quote, because Andrew Jackson was a determined opponent of entrenched banking interests, he has become a heroic figure to many who opposed the bailout of our financial system. Unfortunately, he probably never spoke some of the most famous words attributed to him. Here's the alleged quote. Quote, In Congress in 1836, Jackson closed the second federal bank established 1816 with these comments. The bold effort the present central bank has made to control the government are but premonitions of the fate that await the American people should they be deluded into a perpetuation of this institution or the establishment of another like it. I am one of those who do not believe that a national debt is a national blessing, but rather a curse to a republic, inasmuch as it is calculated to raise around the administration a moneyed aristocracy dangerous to the liberties of the country. "'Gentlemen, I have had men watching you for a long time, "'and I am convinced that you have used the funds of the bank "'to speculate in the breadstuffs of the country. "'When you won, you divided the profits amongst you, "'and when you lost, you charged it to the bank. "'You tell me that if I take the deposits from the bank "'and annul its charter, I shall ruin 10,000 families. "'That may be true, gentlemen, but that is your sin.' Should I let you go on you will ruin 50,000 families and that would be my sin you are a den of vipers and thieves you are a den of vipers and thieves i intend to rout you out and by the grace of the eternal god will rout you out in our comment section this was attributed to a speech before congress in 1836 That certainly is not the origin of the quote unless it went unnoticed for almost 100 years. The first recorded appearance of this quote dates to 1928, almost 90 years after it was supposedly uttered, when it was published in a pamphlet, Andrew Jackson and the Bank of the United States, an interesting bit of history concerning Old Hickory by Stan Henckley's. Hankley's, a Philadelphia auctioneer and collector of Americana, is probably most famous for republishing a prayer book that was supposedly handwritten by George Washington. According to Hankley's, he found the book in a trunk owned by a Washington descendant, Lawrence Washington. Despite the fact that Lawrence Washington told Hankleys that the book had earlier been rejected by the Smithsonian Institute as inauthentic, Henklees sold the original manuscript to a New York collector for $1,250. He also published a facsimile edition that claimed it had been authored by the first president at the age of 20. Frank Grizzard of the University of Virginia, a senior associate editor of the George Washington Papers collection that are housed at UVA, says the prayer book was definitely not written by George Washington. Instead, it was probably written by a descendant of Washington. Hankley's claimed he discovered the Jackson quote in 1883 in the minutes of the Committee of Philadelphia Citizens from February of 1834. In 1834, Jackson did indeed give a speech to a Citizens Committee of Philadelphia in 1834, which was then one of the most important financial centers of the United States. The committee had secured an interview with Jackson on a trip to Washington, D.C. to discuss Jackson's position against the National Bank. The only contemporary account of the interview does not support the authenticity of the quote. Jackson was speaking to a hostile audience, explaining his opposition to the National Bank. The contemporary account, which appeared in the Baltimore-based Niles Register in March of 1834, does say Jackson used some dramatic language, including the claim that he would not restore the deposits or charter of the National Bank, even under torture by the ten Spanish Inquisitions, and that he would rather live in the wilds of Arabia than a country with a national bank. I have read the Scriptures, gentlemen, and I find that when Moses ascended the mountain, the children of Israel rebelled, and made a golden calf and worshipped it, and it brought a curse upon them. This bank will be a greater curse, Jackson is quoted as saying. I have no hostility to the bank, I am willing it should expire in peace. But if it does persist in its war with the government, I have a measure in contemplation which will destroy it at once, and which I am resolved to apply, be the consequences to individuals what they may. But nothing is reported that comes close to the Den of Vipers quote. Does that prove the quote is phony? No. The report of the interview seems to have been written by someone sympathetic to the cause of the bankers. It complains that Jackson's mind was preoccupied by a view on the subject which would neutralize the effects of facts or reason. It goes on to say that Jackson's remarks were very long, somewhat desultory, and so it is deemed unnecessary to present in detail. So perhaps the author of the report simply decided to leave out Jackson's most powerful statements, but certainly there is good reason to doubt its authenticity. Our opinion is that Jackson probably never spoke those words. End quote. "Well spoken contemporaneously or invented later on, they are no doubt very true and no doubt capture the essence of what Jackson thought, believed, and knew to be the case about the bankers and the privately owned central bank that was enslaving the population of the United States. And if he did not utter those particular words, there is another phrase that he most certainly did utter that has been recorded for posterity and which is perhaps even more powerful.
3: After his second term as president, Jackson retired here to the hermitage outside of Nashville to live out his life. He is still remembered here for his determination to kill the bank. In fact... He killed it so well that it took the money changers 77 years to undo the damage. When asked what his most important accomplishment had been, Jackson replied, I killed the bank.
2: Kill the bank he did. And not only did he kill the bank, he became the one and only president in the history of the United States to retire the national debt during his presidency, an idea that seems absolutely unthinkable in our current age of the 12.8 trillion and growing debt of the United States although it should be noted that there is in fact a, a plan to retire the national debt by implementing monetary reforms that would of course abolish the Federal Reserve as a private institution and that's something that Patrick Carmack has talked about on this program before so please take a look at the Patrick Carmack Carmack interviews that are available on YouTube, and you'll see more about the Monetary Reform Act and how the debt actually could be retired in a way that would not cause inflation, which I think everyone would agree is an incredibly laudable goal. But having said all that, yes, Jackson did retire the debt during his time as president. And yes, he did kill the bank and stopped the Second Bank of the U.S. from having its charter renewed. But just because he killed the bank doesn't mean the bank didn't try to kill him. On January 30th, 1835,
7: Jackson was visiting the Capitol building when he was approached by a deranged, unemployed house painter named Richard Lawrence. Lawrence raised a pistol and took dead aim at the president. The gun misfired. Lawrence immediately pulled out a second pistol and shot again at near point-blank range. Again, the gun misfired. Enraged, Jackson went after Lawrence with his cane and had to be restrained by his aides. At the age of
2: 67, Andrew Jackson had cheated death again. And the banker involvement with this, as the history general so helpfully informs us, deranged, unemployed house painter, you ask? Good question.
3: On January 8th, 1835, Jackson paid off the final installment on the national debt, which had been necessitated by allowing the banks to issue currency for government bonds rather than simply issuing treasury notes without such debt. He was the only president to ever pay off the debt. A few weeks later, on January 30th, 1835, an assassin by the name of Richard Lawrence tried to shoot President Jackson. But by the grace of God, both pistols misfired. Lawrence was later found not guilty by reason of insanity. After his release, he bragged to friends that powerful people in Europe had put him up to the task and promised to protect him if he were caught.
2: Well, make of the incident what you will, and by all means, go into the research for yourself, but there's no doubt that that was the first attempted assassination of a U.S. president, and many of the other attempts and assassination plots that have surfaced around U.S. presidents since then have been, in one way or another, connected to the bankers, And I'll include links in the documentation section to some talk of Abraham Lincoln having been assassinated for his monetary policies and the Lincoln greenback. A link talking about James Garfield, the Republican president who said, quote, Whosoever controls the volume of money in any country is absolute master of all industry and commerce. And when you realize that the entire system is very easily controlled one way or another by a few powerful men at the top, you will not have to be told how periods of inflation and depression originate. And was assassinated three weeks later on July 2nd, 1881. There's uh, William McKinley, who signed the Gold Standard Act in 1900 and was promptly assassinated the next year, and there was JFK, who there has been much talk recently about Executive Order 11110, supposedly uh, the first step in a move towards cutting out the Federal Reserve, although to play the side of fair and balanced, why don't we include... Some skepticism on that point of view, and I'll also throw in a link to an article by Michael Collins Piper, Hard Facts Refute JFK Greenback Myth, talking about the myth that JFK was assassinated for his greenback and his attempts to rout out the Federal Reserve, which may or may not have really taken place, but at any rate, it's a very interesting and very rich vein of history to be tapped into because it has been so thoroughly covered over by the layers upon layers of political geological sediment that have accrued over the decades and decades of corporate controlled media and yes banker controlled media telling us what's important and what areas of history need to be focused on when of course one of the absolute most crucial questions that any society any civilization can ever ask how is money created and how our goods exchanged within that society is glossed over as if it's unimportant well once again this incredibly important in fact this central part of not just american history but world history is once again surfacing and coming to the fore as we have a new generation of a new breed of political players who are taking up the mantle of people like Jackson who was so proud to have killed the bank in his time and I think that is an achievement of which anyone could be justly proud so then who is the political successor of that mentality today and how does that fit into the modern political context
0: there have been some serious consequence of our lack of respect and our loss of liberty and lack of concern and defense of our republic and we're suffering the consequences. This is what we're talking about. How can we reverse this trend? I think we have to understand how it happened, what the problems were and what we have to aim for. But we've had a lot of problems because of this. Number one, economic problems because they do not understand the Constitution and economics on monetaries. I mean, it is very clear what we should be doing. The founders knew and understood something about inflation. The runaway inflation of the continental dollar was devastating to the economy, so they were explicit. They said no emitting of bills of credit, no printing money, no paper money, and that only gold and silver should be legal tender. (laughs) Not yet. Didn't give you the signal yet. Now it comes. There is no authority in the Constitution authorizing a central bank, which means there should be no Federal Reserve System. Can you you believe that 18 months ago, at the beginning of this campaign, that I didn't believe any of you existed and cared about or understood anything about the Federal Reserve? It's great!
2: Yes, indeed, we are living through some incredibly interesting times. And make no mistake, there are people on the political stage today who will be talked about and revered and vilified and written about and lauded and sung about and otherwise historicized by the historians of the future, and this era will be seen as a crucial era, every bit as much as the Jacksonian era was. And although the book has not been written yet, there are signs that the awakening of the people to the real nature of what is really controlling our society, our civilization, In fact, the human species in general, now that we've reached the global society level, is coming to the fore and people are working to take back the control from the bankers. Now, this is not to gloss over or obscure important points that need to be made, such as the fact that I'm sure my more astute listeners will by now either already know or will have noticed in the preceding clips, a quite a marked and very important difference, a distinction between the views of people like Bill Still in the Secrets of Oz documentary and people like Ron Paul, and that goes to the creation of money and what money is and whether gold is money. Now, those are extremely important and extremely fascinating debates and debates that need to be brought to the fore and considered in greater detail which is something that I hope to do in the future in future installments of Economics 101 and also future installments of this podcast and articles that I intend to write so please stay tuned to CorbettReport.com for more on that but suffice it to say one thing on which all sides of true monetary reform for the people by the people and of the people would agree on is the ending of the private central bank Monopoly stranglehold over not just the United States, but over so many countries around the world. That is something upon which we can all unite. Together we must work to kill the central banks of today in order to replace them with a system that will work for the people. Because, rest assured, every generation needs an old hickory to rout. The Den of Vipers. That's it for today. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me and asking you to join me again next week for episode 127 of The Corbett Report, Calia and the Stellar Wind.